I think I tweeted what are the best online communities for people running businesses or small businesses. And someone replied saying, why don't you start one? I would totally join. And I said, okay. So I spent an, a night, made a landing page on a Slack channel and then just posted on Twitter and invited some friends that have brands in. And that was really it. I think people who are not in business and don't do projects probably look at me and think, how on earth is he churning out this many projects? But that's a perfect example. I just made a free Slack account, put a logo on it, called it Jacuzzi Club, registered a domain and linked it to the landing page and asked everyone to invite their friends. And that was it. And now there's hundreds of members. That's Marty Bell, the founder of, at my last count, about a billion different projects and companies from a direct-to-consumer sunglasses brand and a soon-to-monetize online radio station to an incredibly active Slack community for creators and a new financial planning app that's just about to close a three-and-a-half million-pound crowdfunding round. Marty joins us from all the way up in Scotland to share how he approaches each new project. Also coming up today, a new hospitality concept that gives chefs a revenue stream and diners a good time and a sneak peek at our soon-to-launch new podcast and newsletter. That's all coming up right now on The Courier Weekly. I'm Daniel Giacopelli, and this is the new weekly podcast from Courier. First up today on the show, we're with Richard Lee Massey. Richard's worked in the hospitality and PR world for years, and he's just launched a brand new dining concept called Apt. How it works is that guests can choose a chef from Richard's roster of chef superstars who will then create a menu and a meal for up to 10 guests. Richard's kicking off the concept at Town Hall Hotel here in London, where guests can use an apartment to host the meal. He came up with the idea as a way of allowing friends to eat an incredible restaurant-quality meal in a safe space, while also giving a revenue source for chefs as restaurants are still obviously getting back on their feet. Well, I thought we'd catch up with Richard to find out just a bit more. So I guess lockdown kicked off the same for pretty much everybody. Working in restaurants myself, I was surrounded by chef friends living in really uncertain times and we didn't necessarily know what was happening next week, let alone in a month or two or three months. It was incredibly uncertain. No one knew what to do, what direction to go in. Sub-brands hadn't been formed. We weren't, they weren't doing restaurant deliveries yet. Everyone sort of came up with very brief ideas that weren't workable. I don't know if you remember, it took about two, three, four weeks even before some restaurants came up with some fun concepts for us. And then I think it was about five or six weeks into it where I had that light bulb moment. I mean, I've kind of wanted to work on a project of my own for a while. I used to run something called The Loft Project back in 2008 with Nuno Mendes. I worked for him and it was basically this chef's platform where we invited chefs to come over and cook up in Dalston so you'd be able to try the menu and food of a chef that you'd otherwise have to travel to. It was cutting edge and people loved it. It got tons of press. And I kind of look back at those times as sort of the most inspired, I guess. And so I kind of wanted to bring that back and have wanted to but haven't had a format to be able to do that and then when lockdown kicked in the whole sort of concept of bringing private chef hire or like that whole chef at home concept I guess it's always kind of been around but I felt particularly relevant just because we couldn't dine out like I love cooking as much as the next person and I love ordering food too but I prefer to have someone cooking for me and if I could have one of my favorite chefs come over to my house or even to an apartment, say at Town Hall Hotel, 
come do that. I would love that. So I jumped at the chance. I kind of reached out to all my friends, my friends, I mean chefs, and everyone was like totally on board and totally keen. The response was incredible. The idea of this is that diners can hire an apartment at Town Hall Hotel, which you have a relationship with. They could pick the chef of their choice and then they come to the apartment and cook for you basically. Basically, yeah. Obviously, some people think you book a room and then you book the chef, but it's actually the way it's built up right now is you choose your chef and the, and the room is packaged into it. If you're a couple or one, two people, not necessarily a couple, you could stay the night. But if it's a group booking, because the rooms or the apartments rather, they fill up to 10 people. So they're not for the night. You have until midnight. So yeah, the room is kind of built into the rate. But yeah, you choose your chef, you choose your date, then we check availability. The whole program or project is very modular so it's kind of like diy or like build your own you can choose a chef choose your menu and just go as far as you want to go basically and the idea is that this is kind of a no pun intended movable feast where you'll be able to change locations at some point or is it tied down to town hotel no it's definitely i don't want to say nomadic but it's i'm already speaking to three different apartment hotels as well as service department buildings rather than hotels just to implement it there's lots of those in bishopsgate and liverpool street and bank area that i know would jump at the chance of being able to invite a chef over to cook for them so it's not exclusive to the hotel that's just my launch base i guess i feel really loyal to them i've worked there for 10 years or not i haven't worked there but i worked with them for 10 years and that included launching Viajant with Nuno members back in the day. So it feels quite fun to be able to bring it all back there. Do the chefs bring like a little entourage of sous chefs and helpers and stuff carrying the ingredients? Or are they just solo kind of workers? So there's no one solid formula per chef. I found every chef works completely differently. The tasting menu types, the Michelin chefs that I've got would more often than not require a sous chef. But then places like Smokestack and Manteca chefs Dave Carter and Chris Leach they're a bit more casual so they won't require a sous chef but I kind of one of the I guess so whilst launching this has been multiple hurdles and I've, I guess it's been evolving as I go along I initially started looking to hiring a team of my own when really each of the chefs I guess you kind of wanted restaurant teams rather than just chefs to benefit from this so each chef is now allowed to bring or we have we've budgeted for each of them to bring a waiter of their own from their own teams so if you book Dave Carter from Smokestack you're getting the Smokestack experience in an apartment which I think is cooler. Do you think that this might you know in your own small way cannibalize a bit of the restaurant's business itself or do you think this is kind of just like different things for different people? I think it's different it's another stream for chefs I will be the first person to say that I love restaurants. I go to them all the time. I eat out pretty much every day. I want to support them. Absolutely. I absolutely want to support them. But what I've kind of noticed is the restaurant model is great and restaurants are great, but the standard template for earning for chefs is slightly dated because they just work 80 hour weeks and they give their lives away. And just to make ends meet from a restaurant is so tough that I kind of wanted to provide a platform that would give back to chefs or not take away from the restaurant, but provide a, a secondary source of income for them, basically. So w when you say, because most people, I mean, I assume, I mean, I certainly don't know anything about the earnings of a chef. So, I mean, most people assume if you're a chef at a Michelin star restaurant, you're making big bucks, you're living the high life. But I assume that's probably not the case. You know, I guess, again, there's no one solid answer to that either. Like if you're working in a huge establishment within a big, well-known hotel, then sure. But there's lots of smaller fine dining places that have Michelin stars and no, they're definitely not rolling in it. Like they're keeping their heads just above water. That's how it tends to be. You have tons of friends in the hospitality world, obviously. You know, last time I saw you, we were, 
you know, sitting at a table shoulder to shoulder with a bunch of other people just like stuffing our faces at a packed restaurant. And those days are long, long gone. And, you know, restaurants depend on that model to survive, right? I mean, that's why we're seeing all these restaurants fail. Are your friends in the hospitality world, restaurant owners, are they despondent? Are they, I mean, you have an inside kind of view of like what's going on in their head. You know what? I think everyone is just really wary. And I think app just came at the right time because it provided, as, as I said, that secondary source. It's, um, I guess, another stream or another outlet, just because as guidelines change, there's still so many hurdles for each restaurant, like social distancing measures and stuff. Like, as I said, restaurants are struggling enough as it is between all the overheads and staffing costs and produce costs and everything. To cut down footfall is catastrophic for them, to be honest. So I felt like this was the best solution for them. That was Richard Lee Massey from Apt. And next up on the show, I'm joined right now by Marty Bell. He's the founder or co-founder of at least four, possibly more, companies and projects at my last count, including one called Nude, which is basically a financial planning app for young would-be homeowners. And it's currently in the middle of a crowdfunding campaign. And Marty, um, I've been meaning to get you on the show for literally ages. We've been talking for a while. Where have you been, man? Where have I been? I've been trying to start about 10 different companies at the same time. Head not in a very good space for speaking much sense on podcasts, but here we are. So we'll see how it goes. For my last count, you have four companies and or projects. I don't really know which of them you'd call companies, which you'd call projects. So you've got Nude, which is obviously a company. You've got Tens, which is a great sunglasses brand, Poolside FM, the online radio station, and Jacuzzi Club which is, you know, a Slack channel and community that I'm a part of. That's great for founders and creatives. So you're a busy guy. Yeah, a gray area between hobby projects and businesses. They seem to start as hobbies and morph into businesses. I think this is my playbook. Poolside FM, I will say, is not a business yet, but it's transitioning there slowly. Jacuzzi Club, not a business at all, but... There's some money involved. We had a brand sponsorship from Buffer recently. So I guess it's it's not a complete hobby, but some companies are giving us money to do cool stuff. So it's more than a hobby now. I mean, you could turn Jacuzzi Club into a business easily just by flipping on a membership switch. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I feel bad because I just want to help people and I want people to have a good time and I don't want it to be a serious thing. I want it to be a chill hangout for founders. I feel bad when I monetize things sometimes like i don't want to heavily monetize poolside fm either not directly anyway i just like making stuff free <laughs> which is terrible business <laughs> well it's worked for twitter so far or maybe it hasn't <laughs> so what's the deal with nude so basically you're trying to combine the functionality that people would normally get from a few different apps whilst they're buying a home and raising money to buy a home and you're lumping it all into one app. Yes, exactly. We want to be the app that people use to buy their first home. From the first five pounds they save and start thinking about, I should really get my shit together and start saving for a home, right through to giving them the mortgage and sending them a bottle of champagne the day they move in. We're nowhere near being able to service mortgages and you need a banking license for that and we have to go through that whole regulatory process. So that's a while away. We're in the initial stages and we've just launched a Cedars campaign in the last week, which we'll use the investment for to launch our initial savings products, which are Lifetime ISAs, which is the savings account, which gives you a 25% bonus from the government when you're saving for your first home. And right now, so we're recording this on a Thursday afternoon. People listen to this 
less than probably 12 hours from now, you're so close to beating your crowdfunding target of 3.5 million pounds. I think you're like 97% filled. Did that surprise you how quickly you'd raise or did you think that this would happen? We had done a lot of preparing for this. Even before we knew it was going to be a Cedars campaign, we've been courting a lot of people from my co-founder Crawford. He comes from the financial world and he's been in for many years, so he has fantastic connections. And we'd been courting a lot of people in that world for raising small amounts of money that were going to make up the round. People putting in 50 grand, 100 grand. We were talking to a lot of these kinds of people before we decided to do the Cedars campaign. Then we decided, why don't we put this all into a Cedars campaign? So we did know a lot of that money was coming in. It hasn't all been entirely organic, straight from putting it on Cedars and that money randomly coming in. So a large percentage of that we knew was coming in. And then we also had the government's future fund match on a certain amount of the funding we're getting. So we knew that match was coming and that was us a large percentage of the way. It's not a huge surprise, but it's been responded to really well. We're really happy. And, you know, you you guys obviously started this way before COVID-19 hit. Millennials are usually dismal with savings. You know, the savings accounts are probably pretty small and the smallest they've probably ever been right now. People are furloughed. Are people even thinking about buying a house right now? I'm going to say people, I mean millennials, because you're really targeting millennials. Obviously, they were, you know, six months ago. But now in the middle of a pandemic, is anybody saving to buy a house? Absolutely, they are. The people who are still employed are obviously being able to put away more money than ever right now because they're not going out for dinner. A lot of what our app is being designed to highlight. So part of it is a savings account and the other part is a kind of insights platform which lets you know the impact of your spending on how long it takes you to buy a home. So on we have this fun interactive onboarding where you say the kind of house you want, the area you want to live, how many bedrooms. We use data of recent sale prices in that area or postcode to say, okay, it's going to be roughly this amount of money for the property. Your deposit will be this much. You tell us how much you can save per month and how much you already have saved. And we give you an exact amount of time it's going to take you to save based on those factors. And then it's all about taking that time down. You might start off at seven years that it's going to take to save up your house deposit. And we say, well, we don't tell you what to do. We just highlight information that says, okay, here's how much you spend on Deliveroo on average per month. If you stop doing that, you're going to get in six months sooner. And it's up to you if you want to do that. We're just highlighting this information. What COVID has done is kind of, without us having said anything yet, it's shown people how much more they can save when they don't do certain things. We don't want to be a brand that's just telling people not to do stuff all the time. Yeah, it's easy to save if you don't have to eat or pay for rent. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So we don't want to be this judgmental organization that are saying don't do anything and you'll be able to save for your first home. We just want to highlight information so you can clearly see these are the things that might be standing in the way of you saving up your deposit a bit more quickly. And also finding new opportunities to save faster. The lifetime ISA alone saves so much time saving into that. And I think Santander did a study in the last year or so that with 5,000 people who were either saving for or in the mindset of starting saving for their first home, and only 17% of them knew about the lifetime ISA. So people were saving already and they weren't saving into a lifetime ISA. And that's just saying no to free money by saving into a lifetime ISA. What's something that's really interesting is that, you know, I've been doing some research on just like rental prices in the U.S. and, you know, in the most expensive markets in the U.S., rent is decreasing, it's dropping because people are generally moving to satellite cities where the rent is cheaper and the lifestyle is better, which is actually in turn driving up the rent in those secondary cities. I wonder, though, if you think people might actually not need to save as much money as they once 
did because they might be moving to places that aren't as expensive full stop and buying houses in the countryside? Or is that just a pipe dream? Do you think people will just stick it out in East London and Williamsburg and not go anywhere? I think that's really hard to answer. I would say a lot of people are fantasizing about it right now. Whether it materializes, I'm not sure. We're based in Glasgow and I've moved back up to the Highlands of Scotland at the start of lockdown and I'm loving being back in the countryside. I'm definitely thinking about moving out of a city back to the countryside and I I bet a lot of others are too. Yeah, there was a stat. It was like 28% of people said if their office goes fully remote, they would consider moving to a different city or state. That was in the US. So that's, you know, almost a third of people saying they would like to move somewhere else if they're allowed to work remotely. It's pretty extraordinary. Yeah, and, and I think this has been a great opportunity for companies to reconsider if they can actually work remotely, where people may have said, we'd like you to be in the office, but we may consider remote working, which is kind of where we started with what we wanted to do with Nude. Now we're just saying, yeah, you can work remotely if you want, going forward permanently, which is exciting for a lot of people. What are the big hurdles generally for saving for a deposit to buy a home? Most people see it as just this insurmountable thing. Some people just go to the you know the bank of mom and dad and they just get their money that way. But to save for a house, that's a lot of money you need to put away. Yeah, it depends where it is in the world, how much you're earning. I think in London, the amount of money you have to save is an overwhelming sum of money that a lot of people would just think that there's no way I'm ever going to be able to do that. So it won't even be on their radar. To put away many, many, many tens of thousands of pounds takes some serious planning. Yeah, exactly. Probably the biggest hurdle is just getting into the mindset of thinking that you can even do it like that it's an achievable goal. A big part of what we're doing is just having a savings plan and a plan to follow makes people so much more likely to achieve their goal. There's a lot of behavioral psychology in this. So there's a number of things that make you more likely to achieve a goal, not just in saving for your house deposits. It's a bigger goal than other things this may apply to. If you want to go for a run, leaving your shoes out the night before and your running kit makes you more likely to do it. And setting a goal and having a savings plan for buying your first home and knowing how much money you're putting away each month, knowing the lifetime ISA bonus you're going to get if you stick to saving, say, £333 a month will allow you to get the maximum lifetime ISA bonus. You know, having that savings plan and just getting that over the line is a big step towards making it happen. I mean, let's talk a bit about TENS. So you have launched, you know, a few years ago, this great sunglasses brand. But you, you've kind of transitioned out of the full-time role, right, to do more of nude and other things. Yeah, exactly. So as we started TENS maybe six years ago now, and we launched that as a direct-to-consumer company, I feel like I've done all that I can do in terms of building the online presence of the brand and the creative direction and was excited about a new challenge. So I phased out of my day-to-day role at TENS, still a shareholder, still help on the creative direction side of things, still super excited about it. We brought on a new CEO who comes from a background at Oakley and the amount, the the quality of our product has improved since he came on board and fixed our supply chain is incredible. It's so exciting to just watch from afar how much it's developing and transitioning from a direct-to-consumer company to a full-on wholesale model, which was disrupted by about a year because of COVID hitting, but kind of trying to get back on track now. Interestingly, we thought that online sales would take a huge dip with people not being out and about and not going on holiday, but we've had one of our best summers ever, which is strange and cool. 
Yeah, that is odd. I was going to ask. And particularly you're up in Scotland too. You're not in, you know, Sicily. (laughs) Funnily enough, we have a huge customer base in Italy, randomly. Well, I mean, it's a sunny place. What about Poolside FM? Speaking of sunny, I mean, so that's your summer internet radio station. You have a million annual listening sessions. It's really fun design. You hinted there that you were trying to turn it into a business. What's that about? So I've partnered with some guys over in New York to launch a product out of Poolside FM that's a lot more significant than just merch. I've always thought there must be a perfect product to launch out of a hyper-engaged community like Poolside FM. And we have found it and it is being launched next year. I think we'll start teasing it out towards the end of this year. And that's all I'm going to say on it. But I'm so excited to launch a brand out of the Poolside FM world because I think it's the funnest thing to work on of all time. And it's the funnest place to hang out on the internet. If you're ever in a bad mood, go to poolside.fm. And, you know, Jacuzzi Club, just finally. So for those who don't know, I mean, this is a Slack channel in the community, as I said, where people could just kind of like shoot the shit, ask people for help, post cool links they've seen. And it's just a really active, cool community. Was that just a project you did like in a weekend just for fun and it just kind of grew or or was that intentional? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Well, I was struggling with a few business related things and I knew that a bunch of my friends were having the same problems. I used to have a, I had a Facebook group with maybe 10 people in it who run businesses in Scotland and we just asked stupid questions because we were all friends and we knew we could say like, what the hell is a insert a question about VAT. Like we knew there was a judgment-free zone to laugh about how little we knew about complex things to do with business because we were all kind of initial stages of running our first companies. So then I think I tweeted what are the best online communities for people running businesses or small businesses. And someone replied saying, why don't you start one? I would totally join. And I said, okay. So I spent a night, made a landing page on a Slack channel and then just post it on Twitter and invited some friends that have brands in. And that was really it. I think people who are not in business and don't do projects probably look at me and think, how on earth is he churning out this many projects? But that's a perfect example. I just made a free Slack account, put a logo on it, called it Jacuzzi Club, registered a domain and linked it to the landing page and asked everyone to invite their friends. And that was it. And now there's hundreds of members. Yeah. And that's just the brilliance of like these closed communities too. I mean, they're just as powerful as the people that you admit into it, I suppose. So you probably have to be careful about not growing too fast as well. Yeah, exactly. I think we've had something like 2000 applicants and there's only maybe 300 people in there. So I feel bad because I want to help people out and I want their, I obviously want to support people who are in the position I was in a couple of years ago and struggling along with a small business. But the community will only be good and helpful if people are off a certain caliber and have expertise to provide. So it's a difficult position to be in. And it's also a certain number as well, too, because like, it's almost like you could grow that thing as much as possible, but then it becomes Facebook or LinkedIn, essentially. But if you keep it small, you're also limiting the amount of expertise that you have on hand. So it's kind of this weird you know, trade-off. It's a nice side right now because you can kind of keep in touch with everything that's happening in there. You vaguely know who everyone is. So we're not trying to promote it too much. Do you think a couple hundred people is like the ideal size? I think we could maybe go like another hundred people and it'd still be pretty good. What's next for Nude? Next for Nude is getting this money in the bank and going and building our savings platform. The app isn't launched yet. We've only done, we did a closed beta early version of the app with about a thousand people. 
just checking the brand resonated, everyone got the concept and we continue to test with those people. They're like our VIP community. Our full, our proper launch will be towards the end of this year. I'm not entirely sure on the timeline for our savings accounts, but that's the big goal right now is continue to test and optimize the app to make sure it's extremely helpful for people and launch our lifetime ISA savings accounts, which we're super excited about. Marty Bell there from Nude. And Marty's keen for me to point out that capital is, of course, at risk when you invest in an equity crowdfund campaign like the one Nude is currently doing. And finally on the show today, we've got some exciting in-house news in the world of Courier. We're soon going to be adding another podcast and another email newsletter in addition to the Courier Weekly to our roster in an effort to really offer a super useful tool. And I'm stressing that useful part for our readers and listeners podcast and the email both drop next Wednesday, and they're going to fall under Courier's workshop branding. That's the bit of Courier that really digs into the nitty-gritty of how to actually run a business and things you need to know. Joining me right now to explain a bit more are the Courier team that work on workshop, Duncan Griffiths, Nakanishi, and Amir Ojiwa. And Duncan, first of all, I mean, could you just give a bit of a background of why exactly we're doing this? Yeah, so basically our thinking behind this was to offer a resource for people who want to better run and grow their business. So every two weeks we come in with some very practical and actionable advice on a business concept that they might know something about, but they might know nothing about, and explain how it's relevant to them and what they can do with their information and the next steps they can take. Yeah, and Amira, what exactly can listeners look out for and readers look out for on next Wednesday? What will hit their inbox and podcast apps? Yep, great. Well, you kind of said it yourself. A newsletter will hit their inbox and then a podcast will be available for listening. And so the two will both cover the same kind of business topic. For the next week's edition, we're going to be focusing on debt financing as an alternative to equity financing. If that sounds kind of trickier or complicated, the whole point of both the podcast and the newsletter will be to make it really accessible, break it down. So kind of any aspiring business owners or kind of existing business owners can figure out like how this could be relevant to them. We'll point them in towards some good resources and tools as well so that they can kind of put things into action and get the ball rolling if, if they're inspired by what we kind of share. They're very much two halves to a whole. So if you listen to the podcast and then you take in the newsletter, you're getting a very comprehensive perspective on a topic. They're very much to be taken together. And the idea is generally that, you know, whoever you are, whether you have a, you know, vegan meats brand or a car company, basically, you can apply the learnings of these podcasts and emails to your business, right? Yeah, absolutely. We're looking at like foundational, you know, business topics that are relevant to any industry, any sector, and actually on the podcast. So the newsletter focuses on some tools and resources, as well as breaking down some key concepts. Each time on the podcast, we'll speak with a couple of of founders in different sectors so that listeners can really kind of hear how this applies cross-sector. And that's it for this week. As always, if you've got any questions, comments, or feedback about anything at all, you can reach me at daniel at couriermedia.co. I'm Daniel Giacopelli. The Curry Weekly is back again next Friday.